Well, good morning, church. You're here or you're watching from home or somewhere else this morning. It's good to be together to open up God's Word. As you've heard me say many times, we continue in our worship. We sometimes think worship's what we do at the beginning. We sing and we do some other things. That's worship. And then we come around God's Word. This is worship too. We're still worshiping. We're worshiping around the centerpiece of our lives, which is the Word of God, which we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. Now, years ago, when I was serving as youth pastor, uh, one of the teens in my youth group sent my wife and I a surprise package in the mail, and it showed up on our front door. The gift was uh, from, um, from her vacation in Hawaii. And there on my doorstep was a coconut, a coconut. It was very intriguing. I thought it was very cool. And I couldn't wait to get inside the house and open it up. There was one slight problem. I didn't know how to get inside of it. I stared at the coconut for a moment looking for some instructions on the bottom, and, and, and there were none. And this was, by the way, in case you, you, know, you think I'm kind of pathetic here, this was the days before the internet. So I was on my own. No YouTube video showing me how to crack this thing open. So I took out a sharp knife, and that didn't work. I began to smack the coconut on the counter, and my wife wanted me to stop doing that, and that didn't work anyway. I took my hammer to it, hoping to smash it open. Still nothing. I was fighting with a coconut and losing the battle. I even resorted to my drill. For the life of me, I could not get this thing open. And you know, I wasn't alone. Sometime later... I read of of someone else who had similar problems, and he went as far as to stand on the roof of his house and heave the thing to the ground, and that didn't work. And so then he then wedged the coconut under the rear tire of his car and backed over it. Eventually, he just threw the thing away. And I didn't go to those measures, but the outcome was the same. I ended up throwing the coconut away. I couldn't use it. It did me no good. Now, I know you're all going to have some comments for me afterwards, but you know what? I likened that to how many feel about the Bible. They have heard that there's good stuff inside. They just aren't sure how to crack this thing open and enjoy and receive its richness. And for all intents and purposes, they end up throwing it away, thinking it has no relevance to their lives. The question I asked this morning is, do you know what's in your Bible? Do you know what's in your Bible? And in a study on what we believe, knowing what's inside this book is of great importance. For everything we believe about God, we believe about Jesus Christ, about his work of redemption, and all the rest of the statements we're working through in this sermon series comes most clearly from the written word of God. So this morning, as we continue in our sermon series on True North, expose the second article, an evangelical free statement of faith, uh, which uh, Melissa read earlier, but let me read it again. It will show up on your screen again. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As a verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, 
and trusted in all that it promises. And as I did with what we believe about God and taking two weeks on that subject, I'm going to take two weeks on this subject. I'm not going to do that with every statement, but I am on, on, on the Bible, um, uh, take two weeks on this subject, this statement about the Bible. And what, and what Dan had planned for this week until he came down sick on Friday is going to be covered next week. And so I'm doing part two, but on week one instead of week two, and he'll do part one on week two instead of, I mean, it kind of gets confusing, doesn't it? Well, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's just go there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, it will all come together, whether it's part one or part two, it is really irrelevant. Chapter two, uh, chapter three, excuse me, of 2 Timothy, and I hope you're looking at your Bibles uh, as it's about the Bible um, and so, be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, a few years ago, we made our way through the entire book of 2 Timothy. We made a stop at the same verses that we're going to look at this morning. So, there might be some overlap there, but, but trust me, it's not stale bread. It's still fresh for us this morning. Now, let me give you the main thought to take with you today from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. I like to do this often. Give it to you up front. Here it is. Nothing changes us like the Word of God. Nothing changes us like the Word of God. And in categories of, of sermon types, this is a persuasive sermon in that, in that I'm trying to convince you or, or you'd be more convinced that nothing changes us like the Word of God, that the Bible is the means the primary means God uses to shape our lives. Nothing changes us like the Word of God. To what degree are you convinced of that? All right, first principle this morning is it is in God's Word we form convictions that help us navigate life. It's in God's Word we form convictions that help us navigate life. I hope you're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verse 14. But as for you, and Paul's speaking to his protege, uh, uh, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Now, what I want you to notice there is that Paul says of Timothy that not only is he to continue in what he has learned, but also in what he has become convinced of. What he has learned has one idea, and what he's become convinced of expresses a different thought. See, to learn is to gain knowledge and understanding, but to be convinced of something is to embrace it with all that we have. Now, church, this is my desire for you as your pastor. This is the hope of, of every godly parent for their children growing up in the Christian home. That not only do they learn the word of God, but they are convinced, they are convinced that it is the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor and teaching and everything else should be judged. In other words, since what the Bible says, since what the Bible says is what God says, and what is written here is the ultimate standard of everything else that is set forth uh, as truth. And so to say then that this is the ultimate authority in our lives means it dictates how 
we ought to think, how we ought to act, how we ought to process everything that comes at us. So that means then, whenever there's an apparent discrepancy between science and Scripture, or an apparent discrepancy between someone's teaching or Scripture, you have a choice to make. Believe a fallible, imperfect person or the infallible, perfect, all-knowing Now, how do I become convinced of the things I have been taught about God and about Jesus, about the world around me, what it means to be a Christian? Well, I have to open this thing up. I need to search the Scriptures. Because knowledge without convictions cannot sustain your walk with the Lord. So how does a person make it, make it through struggles? How do, you, how do you build a thriving marriage that can weather, weather the storms? How can, we, how can we keep from being tossed all over the place by misleading news and false narratives? How can we sniff out popular teaching that sounds too good to be true? What can filter out error and bogus teaching? One word. Convictions. Convictions. It's answering as Jesus did when tempted by the devil. Remember? What did he say? It is written. Do you know know what's written? When you're confronted by a situation, do you know what what Scripture speaks to that? Can you say it with any level of certainty? Because what you believe about the Bible not only defines who we are, which is, is kind of our, our theme for our series, but it also affects every decision. Do you know what's in your Bible? What are your convictions? Do you have convictions? And are they based on the Word of God? I mean, for example, are you convinced that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Are you convinced that the message of the cross is absolutely central to all that you say and all that you do? Those are just a couple of examples. Because whether young or old here, you need to be convinced of these things written here. Moms and dads, you need to have convictions. Husbands, wives, do you know what's in your Bible? Do you know what convictions convictions will, will hold you together when conflict tries to tear you apart? Those of you who are single, what are you convinced of that will keep your head in it when your heartstrings are being pulled? Church, what are you convinced of that has the power to sustain you in the rocky times? Are your convictions strong enough to keep you in check even when no one else is looking or no one else agrees? See, what prepares you to live in such times as these? It has to be something with depth, something solid, something we can cling to, something that will give us soul nourishment, something that's our fixed reference point so we have the necessary spiritual muscle to keep us pressing on. All right. It's the Word of God that helps us form convictions, biblical convictions, convictions that will sustain us in life. Second principle this morning is God's Word is no ordinary book. All right. God's Word is no ordinary book. Paul reminds uh, Timothy to continue, not only because he knows those from whom he learned God's word, but also because, look at verse 15 with me now, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Well, we have to ask, what holy scriptures? What is he referring to here? Some translations say sacred writings. What writings, sacred writings, did Timothy have? Well, uh, the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. He was, he was taught, it says here, the Old Testament from an early age that made him wise for salvation, set him up for understanding the message of the cross and the message of Jesus. And you go, well, well salvation in Christ isn't really talked about until we come to the New Testament, the gospel. How did he have something there um, just from the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament? Well, this is no ordinary book. The Bible is a book about Jesus. Remember when we went through the, the progress of redemption, the drama of redemption? We saw how Jesus was the, the thread all the way through. And so when Timothy was taught the Old Testament by his mother and grandmother, they pointed out the faith of Abraham that looked beyond his day to a greater blessing that would come to all people. And when, and, and when, they, when he would sit down and, and they would read through Isaiah chapter 53... Isaiah 53, and it spoke of one who would be oppressed and, and led like a lamb to the slaughter, the one who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. It was the, the, to the suffering servant, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, they would say. This is what the one, the one who's being talked about here. Timothy would start to understand that and connect the dots. This is no ordinary book. This isn't just a bunch of nice stories for kids to learn in EBC Kids. It's a book about Jesus. It's been said this way, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, the letters, Jesus is explained. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is anticipated. Now, how can all of that kind of make sense? Well, we have to ask the question, who wrote this? Who wrote the Bible? Well, look at the first phrase, the first statement of verse 16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. Our statement of faith says verbally inspired because some translations say all scripture is inspired by God. But literally, it is all scripture is God-breathed. All of it is. And so the Holy Scriptures mentioned in verse 15 referring to the Old Testament and the New Testament that's included here with the phrase all Scripture. Now it's worthy to note, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's worthy to note that it is Scripture that is inspired and not the people chosen to record it. It's not like, oh, I'm like a poet. I'm, I'm inspired to write this. That's not who's inspired here. The words are, the Scripture is all right, so who wrote this? Did God write this or did humans write this? The answer is yes. It's yes. It's dual authorship. God wrote it. Humans wrote it. God has spoken to us through these 66 books, broken into two sections, the Old Testament of, of 39 books and the New Testament of 27 books. God wrote this, revealing himself to us while at the same time preserving the human authors from error and without violating their personalities. They spoke using their, their, their faculties, their personalities, their backgrounds, their experiences freely without distorting the message. Because this book is God-breathed. Every word of it. It proceeds from God. 
That's why it's authoritative. All right, look with me in your Bibles for a minute at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I don't often take you other places, but I really want you to look at this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Keep your finger here, your marker here, and 2 Timothy. We're going to come back to it, but back up a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read verse 13. Follow along as I read verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Now, another word for that would be welcomed it. They welcomed, they welcomed what he had to say. But look, look why, though. The verse continues because they welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. Do you see it? They, they welcome Paul's teaching, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. Now, to be sure, Paul was active in speaking the words to these believers, but just as a ship is driven and directed and carried about by the wind, God directed and, and moved and carried Paul and all the human writers of Scripture to speak and write down exactly what he wanted. So we have in Scripture exactly what God determined to be there. And it is for, uh, it's, an, it's enough for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him. You see, all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any words of Scripture is the same as disbelieving or disobeying God himself. Now, verse 13 ends here in, 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 the, in the Thessalonians passage on the note that this word, um, what this word did in them as they welcomed into their lives was indeed at work in them. Because when we not only receive God's word, but we welcome it into our hearts, does it then bring the power of God to bear on our lives? Because it is living and it's active, Hebrews 4.12. You see, nothing changes us like the word of God. Are you being changed by the word of God? Are you experiencing the living and active word on, on, on you on the home front? On you at your job and you in your relationships? You in some area of persistent sin? Are you finding it to be changing you because it's living and active? Because you're welcoming it. You're welcoming it. It's the statement of faith put it. It's to believe in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Spurgeon said it this way, preacher from, from many years ago. He said, I'd recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or, or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There's no logical standing place between the two. And then he goes on to say, be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best. It's little better than dry land faith and it's not good for much. Kind of like that coconut. Church, is this the authority in your life? Strip everything else away. Is this the authority in your life? This is what you're living by. This is what you're following. This is your go-to. Do you believe in all that it teaches? You see, this is no ordinary book. All right, third principle. I need to, I need to move on here. Third principle, 
continuing this thought, God's word is to be more than informational, it's to be transformational. God's word is to be more than informational, it's to be transformational. I love how Howard Hendricks put it. He said, the Bible was written not to satisfy your curiosity, but to help you conform to Christ's image. I love this. Not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you like the Savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of biblical facts, but to transform your life. You see, God's word tells us how to do life. All right, back to, back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I hope you kept your finger there. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. After Paul speaks of this God-breathed-out book, he says it's useful, it is profitable, as some translations put it. This is profitable, this is useful. Well, you have to ask, what is the Bible useful for? Here's an example of what it's not useful for. A pastor was looking for a parking space in a big city for quite some time. And he drove around and around and around, and realizing that he was short on time and there were no parking spaces available, he pulled his car in a no parking zone. So he, he walked out, he, he put a note under the windshield wiper of his car that said, uh, I have circled the block a hundred times. If I don't park here, I'll miss my appointment. He then added, it is written, forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our trespasses. That's what he thought the Bible was useful for. Hmm. Well, when he returned, he found a citation from the police officer along with this note. He said, I've circled this block hundreds of times for the last 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I could lose my job. He then added, it is written, lead us not into temptation. <laughs> I think he got him. See, the Bible is useful for more than just throwing a verse someone's way to get out of a jam or to, or to show someone up or to, or to bully a person to get your way and you've got to give them a verse or to justify your actions. The, the Bible is meant to, isn't meant to be kept in some compartment of our lives to be pulled out only when needed. No, no, it is to be our life. We ought to be feeding on it, delighting in it, and meditating upon it. Don't, don't treat this, don't treat God's word as this magical lamp that you rub three times a day to keep the devil away. What is it useful for? Look, it states it in one verse, verse 16. Four ways that it's useful, right here. We're not going to be able to get into all of this, but I do want to touch on them. Notice what it says, verse 16. It is useful for what? Teaching, buking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, so it's useful for teaching. For teaching, it says, under the lordship of Christ, we are not free to believe whatever we like. Or as Augustine put it, if you believe what you like in the gospel and you reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Truth is not inside of us. It's outside of us, and it is fixed. We had to take all our cues and form all our beliefs around what is written here. It is useful for teaching us about the world around us, about who Jesus is, about his work of redemption. It's useful for teaching us about what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about the church, what we believe about Christian living and future things and contemporary issues. And, and it's useful to teach us about how to respond to human authority. 
All our moral and ethical beliefs that have come from what God has told us in Scripture, and not from traditions, not from human reason, not from other religious writings. Now, all those may be useful, but they're all subject to God's Word, which is our ultimate authority on all matters. Always. If it doesn't pass through this, you got to do something with it. All right, it's useful for teaching. Secondly, it's useful for rebuking. Rebuking. Now, this may be a reason we'd prefer not to open the Bible, right? So we want to keep doing what we're doing. And if I look at the Bible, it may tell me to stop doing that. And I don't really want to stop doing that, so I'm just not even going to open it. Because it might rebuke me. I don't like the obvious solution here. Reminds me of Kelvin and Hobbes' comic strip, the, 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 the character. Um, Kelvin says to his friend Hobbes, you know, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings, and I'm, I'm really sorry that I did it. Hobbes says, well, maybe you should go and apologize to her. And Calvin ponders this for a moment, and he replies, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> That's the rub for us, isn't it? I, I, I know what it says. I know what it's telling me to do. I'm, I'm hoping for a less obvious solution here. So I'll go other places rather than do this. Is there an area right now that God's word is rebuking you? Maybe it came from someone else. Now, here's the beautiful thing about God's word. It isn't only useful to point out what's wrong, but it shows us what is right. It's useful, useful for correcting, for correction. See, we're riding along in our lives, and when the Bible says recalculating, recalculating, it, it gives us the way back to, on the road, the right road, right? Not only does God rebuke us through his word, he corrects us. I mean, praise God that he isn't only a reproving God, but a correcting God. Not only does he say, not only does he say, no, not that, but he says, it's more like this. It isn't just, no, no, no. It's also, yes, yes, yes. It's not this way, but this way. We need both. Parents, our children need both, reproof and correction. So it's useful for rebuking and correcting. It's also useful for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. What the Bible does for you is it trains you in righteousness. Again, it's not to be looked at as this good luck charm that, it, that if you hold in your hands or you rub it on your way out the door or, you know, if I just have my devotions in the morning, check, then I'm going to have a great and awesome day. It doesn't work that way. It's going to train you in the way you ought to live through repetition. It's going to train you on how to do things the right way through owning up when you messed up, through doing what it says to do even when it's hard, very hard. All right, let me summarize the, its usefulness to our lives this way. It's on the screen. God's Word tells us what is right, teaching. Tells us what is not right, rebuking. Tells us how to get right, correcting. And tells us how to stay right, training. All are related to how we live our lives on a daily basis. It's all very practical. That's why it ends with these words in verse 17. So that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, the big effect that the Bible has on us is that we may be complete, we may be equipped for every good work. It ought to be transforming us. Now, now think with me on this. At the risk of being misunderstood here, I'm going here anyway, but think with me on this. Why is it that we have more 
Bible studies today available to us than ever? We can listen around the clock to preachers of what we would call the best of the best. And yet the evangelical church's spiritual temperature is abnormally low. The morality is off the charts. Immorality is off the charts. People are falling all over the place. Why? Why is it that we have more written on marriage than ever and marriage conferences available to us, yet more and more homes are falling apart? Is the problem that we're lacking preachers and books and Bible translations and neat doctrinal statements and Christian conferences and study guides and the like? No way. What is the issue? You know what the issue is. I know what the issue is. The issue isn't how much we know. It's an issue of what you do with what you already have that really matters. Are you willing to let God's word change you? Change me? Well, I mean, just the same. Read it, good, excellent. That's really nice. Can't wait till next week. See, you can go through the Bible, but is it going through you? All right. Fourth principle ties right into this. God has spoken all we need to know for faith and life. God has spoken all we need to know for faith and life. Now next week, Dan is going to address this matter of God has spoken and the credibility of his word. As we go to part one, that's going to be second week, all that again. But, this, but, but, but I want us to camp here. That, that this is, that we said this is God-breathed. It's the spoken word of God that has been written down for us in the Bible. And what we have then is the complete revelation of God's will for salvation. What is written here are the divine words we need for all of life. Tell me how you line up. This is rhetorical. Tell me how you line up with this. Everything required for us to live a godly life has been given to us in the Bible. How do you line up with that? Well, Peter can say in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, you can turn there if you like, it will be on the screen. 2 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has given us everything we need. For life and godliness through our knowledge of him we gain through God's word. Who called us by his own glory and goodness. I have to stop here and ask you the question, are you convinced that God's word is sufficient? That's complete. Make no mistake about it. The Bible is enough. Nothing changes us like the word of God. And that is, that is why as your pastor, I am not allowed to preach what is not in the Bible. This right here is plenty right here in the depths of the living water of God's word for us to plunge into the rest of our days. Yet sadly, sadly, it is as one writer described it, the tendency today is merely to splash around in truth for a while and then jump outside the well to the surrounding soil to some new thing. And then when that novelty wears off, they jump again to a new patch of grass. And you know what? There are many preachers and and books and all kinds of stuff willing to accommodate fickle Christians. Reminded of a Peanuts comic strip. Children were writing an assignment about their summer vacation. And Linus, you know, he was hard at work and he wrote this. He said, even though I had a lot of fun this summer at the beach, going to movies, playing ball, and vacationing with my family. He said, I could not wait to return to the hollowed halls of learning. I missed my amazing school my wonderful books, and my outstanding teacher. I am so happy to be back. 
He handed him the paper, stood there while the teacher read it. He says, uh, A plus? Well, thank you very much, ma'am. And as he leaves the room, he says to another child, as the years come and go, you start to learn what sells. And you know what? There are plenty of people out there that will give you what sells. What sells. Many Christians search and search for something to add to their lives, thinking this would be the very thing that kickstarts their Christianity. This is it. This is what will change your life. I've heard that for 30 plus years. Again, at the risk of being misunderstood. Experiencing God, this is it. This will change your life. Purpose-driven life, this is it. This will change your life. On and on and on it goes. Again, I am not slamming those things. That is not my point. But we looked at those things. This is it. This is what's going to change my life. No, this is going to change your life. Come on, let's be honest here, guys. This is what is going to do it. Those other things are helpful? Sure. Sure. But J.I. Packer, he put it well. He said this, and he said this years ago, and he's spot on today. He said, the outside observer sees us, meaning Christians, staggering on from gimmick to gimmick, stunt to stunt, like so many drunks in a fog, not knowing at all where we are or which way we should be going. Preaching is hazy, heads are muddled, hearts fret, doubts drain strength, uncertainty paralyzes action. Today, he says, we lack certainty. He wrote that many years ago. So church, instead of hopscotching from one side of God's truth to another, let's probe the depth of this vast reservoir. Are we reading everything but the Bible? Does our diet only include books about the Bible, neglecting the Bible itself? Amy Carmichael said it this way, never let good books take place of the Bible. Drink from the well, not from the streams that flow from the well. Now again, do not misunderstand me here. There are a bunch, I use them myself, a bunch of good resources available to us today. That is a good thing. It can help us better understand the truth of God seen in the world around us. And, and it can help us understand the written word. Those are helpful. Those are good. Absolutely. Don't misunderstand me. But please, don't lose confidence in the word of God and how it can transform your life. That's my point. Because everything, everything we do must be built on the word of God. Everything. We must build our church on it. We're to build our children's ministries on it. We're to build our adult ministries on it. We're to build our homes on it, our marriages on it, our businesses on it, our future plans on it. Everything must be built on the word of God. Everything. If we deviate to the right or the left, we are in trouble, serious trouble. I have no plans to do that. Because what God has told us in the Bible is enough for us for salvation, to trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him. It's to believe in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And so while there is some truth to, the, to, to, the, to this matter of our struggle to get to the contents inside like that coconut, if we're honest, if we're honest, the trouble we have with Scripture is not in what we don't understand, but what we do understand, to quote Mark Twain. 
The problem in obeying what it says is that we make it more complicated than it really is. We go, oh, no, they can't mean that. It's not saying that. You know, if you really read back in the history of this, it wouldn't be that at all. That's complicated. They don't have to obey it. Imagine. And I borrow this from, from Lee Strobel. This is hypothetical. I have no names in mind with this, okay? You'll understand why I'm saying that in a moment. Imagine a daughter and her boyfriend going out for a date on a school night. The dad says to the daughter, you must be home before 11. It gets to be 10.45 p.m. and the two of them are having a great time and they don't want the evening to end. So suddenly they begin to have difficulty interpreting the father's instructions. What did he really mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Did he literally mean us? Or was he saying, as a general rule, people must be home before 11? Or was he just making the observation that generally people are in their homes before 11? I mean, he wasn't very clear, was he? And what did he mean by saying, you must be home before 11? Um, he probably means it as a suggestion. I know he loves me, so isn't it implicit that he wants me to have a good time? And I'm having a good time right now. Wouldn't you want me to have a good time? He wouldn't want my evening to end so soon. So he couldn't have meant that. It was just a suggestion. And when he said you must be home before 11, he didn't specify who's home. It could be anybody's home. Maybe he meant it figuratively. Remember the old saying, home is where the heart is? Well, my home's right here, so, that does, so doesn't that mean I'm already home? Did he mean that in the exact literal sense? Besides, he never specified 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. And he wasn't very clear on whether he was talking about Central Standard Time or Eastern Standard Time. For in Hawaii right now, it's still only quarter to a seven. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, it's always before 11. Whatever time it is, it's always before the next 11. <laughs> so with all these ambiguities, we can't really be sure what he meant at all. I mean, if he can't make himself more clear, we certainly can't be held responsible. We do that all the time in God's Word. That, that, can't, that, can't, that can't be really what he means. There's got to be more to it. It's figurative, probably. It's probably for that audience, not for me. I mean, God should have made himself a little more clear if this is really what he wanted me to do. I mean, let's be honest. Don't we do that with, with what God has said in his Word? We complicate it so we don't have to obey it. Nothing changes us like the Word of God. That is, if we let it. If we let it. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for um, these words. I, I, I have to believe they're timely words because everything you do is on time. So we needed to hear this today. I needed to hear it. In preparing this and, 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 and as I'm delivering it, I needed to hear this today. And so thank you for bringing it to us today. And if that's true, and it is, and you, you orchestrated this to, to, to give us this word on this day, we got to take that pretty seriously to go, I need to receive it, welcome it into my life and do something with it. Can't blow it off. God, this is not about spending X amount of time in, 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 in the Bible this week and make a New Year's resolution. And it's not it. 
It's not about everyone being feeling guilty because they don't spend enough time in God's word. It's about this is what is sufficient for life. This is it right here. And I pray, God, that it would drive us to want to know what's here, to listen to it as coming from your very word, from your very mouth, for it's all God-breathed. May it change us individually, as families, as a church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.